listening to the Testudo Times Podcast, the official podcast of SB Nation's Maryland Terrapins Colossus. Welcome to episode 118 of the Testudo Times podcast, where it's a good thing all of us were thinking about burner accounts on Twitter before we recording on this Wednesday afternoon, Thomas. I spent my entire night last night thinking about burner account jokes and couldn't think of any because everybody made them all. Yeah, um, you know, if you if you wait long enough to make them, you'll get burned and you won't have any. Boo, boo. I hope you won't be here all week with those kinds of jokes. Uh, too bad. Ah, damn it. Anyway, uh, Jared is also here. You've been a while for you, Jared, on the show. Do you have any burner account jokes that you would like to uh, present to the world? No, but I was thinking about making one, like, for myself and then just, like... What would your burner account be like, actually, now that I think about it? I don't know. I would probably just, like, make fun of myself. It would be, like, a self-deprecating thing, but... But then people are going to know it was you because yeah, I think that's that's kind of the point. Like just do you know, just like, haha, like we all know it's you. I don't think hiding it is the point. I think it'd just be funny to be like, every time I really tweeted something for real, my burner account would be like, shut up, Jared, you suck. And then I don't know. I I always thought that my own Twitter account was kind of a parody of itself at this point. But like, if you're going to do a burner account. I'm going to make a suggestion to people. If you're going to do this in the future, don't make it tangentially about the thing you're trying to hide. Like, yes, Brian Colangelo, if you were going to do this, maybe make it about, like, French food or something, and then no one would have suspected it was you. You could have tweeted randomly about all sorts of things. You could have tweeted in another language. Just hide it better than you did, because it's actually kind of sad when you think about that whole story in hindsight. But this is only delaying the inevitable we actually have to talk about. Maybe Kevin Hurdle will be drafted by the Sixers. Who knows? And then Brian Colangelo's burner accounts will be tweeting bad things about him or something. Who knows? Who the hell knows at this point? Uh, Thomas, Kevin Hurdle is going to stay in the NBA draft. It ended up not being a surprise when everything is said and done. But if you had told me in the end of October 2017 that Kevin Herter was going to go into the NBA draft and Bruno Fernando was going to stay at Maryland, I would have probably said you were crazy. If you had told me in April 2018 that he was going to stay in the draft, that's a good I point. Believe too. you. It's a very good you know, point. I mean, really, only in the last month did he become anywhere near. You know, he started popping up on mock drafts, and then, you know, he started moving up in the second round, and a good combine put him in the first round, and he stayed up. He stayed high since, and now you'll see him as high as 17, 18, and there are still a few mocks that don't have him in the first round, but. Every, it's a draft that's not that deep on wing talent. A lot of people call him one of the best shooters in the draft. He shot 42% from three um, as a sophomore. And, I mean, he's obviously got a lot more to his game as well. And so, you know, he's been, you know, one of the biggest rising prospects of the last month. And because of that, it was just too much for him to, to turn down. Yeah, I mean, Jonathan Gavoni's uh, draft markings have him the 20th, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. Like, I don't know how many people had him anywhere near a draft board like that in April. I mean, we all knew he was a good player. We've watched him for years. But the thing is, 
that to see him rise like this, we knew he had the ability to do so, but then he flashed at the NBA draft. And as we've said before on this show, he is the exact kind of player the modern NBA loves. So he is going to be a hit wherever he gets drafted. And even if he gets drafted 20 to 30, that means a good team's probably drafting him. And he'll have a chance to develop in a situation that's very favorable to him rather than being thrust into a terrible situation almost immediately. And he'll still be making pretty good money doing that. So it's probably an ideal situation for a player of Herder's ability. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it, it really depends on, on who does because there are some, you know, non-playoff teams picking in the 20s. Some teams that are going through rebuilds like Chicago at 22 is where he went in uh, ESPN's like televised mock draft last night. Um, but I didn't want to watch that for fear of it actually happening. Yeah. And then on, you know, he's also been rumored like, like Lakers at 25, Jazz at 21, as high as uh, the Spurs at 18 or something. Now, obviously, like if Kevin Herter goes to the Spurs, the Spurs, he seems like he'd be a really good fit there. Everyone is a good fit for the Spurs. That, this is like, true, but he seems like, like to be a better than normal fit for the Spurs. I think I said that once about Jake Lehman, and now I'm saying it about Kevin Herter. There must be a connection here. Yeah, he's like an evolved Danny Green. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Although I think the Spurs still have the original Danny Green, which is odd. They probably do, but you know what? They would take the evolution the way things are going right now. Yeah. Can't blame them for that. So, Jared, with this whole situation and how it just sort of went from zero to 100 in a matter of days, almost, it seems, like, we now have to kind of look back on Kevin Herter at Maryland. And while Maryland really accomplished not very much while he was here, he turned out to be one of those kinds of players that when you look back on him, Maryland fans are going to remember him almost unanimously with love and adoration because he was really, really good, way faster than any of us thought he was going to be really good. And he took steps that many of us wanted to see Maryland have in terms of developing these kind of players. They're never going to get the best prospects, it seems, if this recruiting class is any example. But if they could get good players and turn them into great players, and it's clear that Kevin Herter went from a good to a great player, then that's how they're going to be successful in the future. And it's just a shame that Kevin Herter won't be around to see that process completely come good. But he's going to be one of the best success stories for Maryland basketball in recent years. Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely speaks to, you know, the development of the players. I, I do want to push back a little on the the recruiting of the best players. Well, they got good they, players, but they, they tried for some great ones and struck out, but that happens. Yeah, but I mean, anytime you're pulling in the number seven recruiting class in the country with two top 40 players. It's true. Um, I, I don't think there's much to be um, disappointed with. I know that sounds odd. Being oh, that you know Maryland Maryland, fans, so they are complaining Maryland, about it. Yeah, I mean, look, Maryland missed on Moses Brown, Keldon Johnson, Devon Dotson, and we'll say others who weren't really super in the picture. Um, and so you miss on three five-stars like that, and it sounds bad, I guess. Um, but when you're pulling in the number 14 player in the country in, in a center in Jalen Smith, who's local, um, and number 39 player in the country, Aaron Wiggins, who can potentially slide right in and sort of be what they're losing in Kevin Herter, um, and then contributors. I mean, Eric Ayala in his own right is a top 75 player. The last time I checked is a combo guard, and Sarah Smith and Trace Ramsey you know, can at least be contributors down the road. So... I mean, 
you're 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 not it's not a lost class you know what i'm saying no, so of course it's, it's not uh, but to maryland fans some of them it would be because we're right. realistic and you know i have my own issues with <laughs> with the maryland fan base at times oh we all have we all that is we're all in this we're all in this together but it's okay there's some friendly fire sometimes yeah. anyway, you know on, on kevin herter being great and really developing as fast as he did yeah, I mean it, it's it. I mean you said it. It's uh, it's it is a testament to player development, and and he's a guy that Maryland fans will look back on, you know, as as a fan favorite and somebody who is easy to root for. Um, it's I, I mean I don't really know what else what else there is to say about it. It's it's it is maybe a little frustrating that he developed the way he did but the team's results didn't match that kind of development. Um, that's, that's the way to phrase it. But, but one, I mean, it's not, one player can't really fully carry a team to, you know, to new heights. You know, the, oh, the man. We, you think about what Maryland would have been potentially like if he came back. If he came back, yeah, because, you know, he's coming back for the third year. Bruno, Bruno Fernando's coming back for a second year. We'll get to that soon. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, with, with that recruiting class coming in. So, I, I mean, yeah, it would have made the team a lot better. I, I think the team is going to be a lot better next year than people are thinking it's going to be um, without him even. Um, that's not to say it wouldn't have been a top – 20 top 15 team with him it absolutely would have been but i don't think this is uh, i still think this is a top 25 team um without him so you might be the only one but we'll get to that in a second i think thomas on the terms of development it's something i think we should focus on because even if maryland gets the best players from time to time their bread and butter is going to be developing players like kevin herter and he wasn't, I don't even think he was the biggest prize in that recruiting class. I mean, even if I look back on it two years ago, and that's a while now, he certainly didn't feel like the biggest prize. And of all of those players, he was the one that kind of emerged among the group that was that 16-17 team. I mean, Anthony Cowan's obviously flashed. He's a point guard. Justin Jackson had those great moments. But, I mean, his whole story is kind of tragic when you compare it to Kevin Herter. I mean, that juxtaposition is kind of interesting when you think about it. But, but for that kind of player now, you can think if he does really well in the NBA, which you all should be rooting for him to do, because not only is it good to watch Maryland players succeed, but if he does succeed, then those kind of players will want to come to Maryland to play for that same sort of developmental process and for that same sort of developmental perspective uh, success that they could have. And I think that might be the biggest takeaway from Kevin Herter is because if Maryland can develop players like that, then they're going to be a really good program year in and year out all the time if they can find those players and develop them. Even players that are very good, but then Maryland, as we said, could turn them into great players. I think the it's, it's this double-edged sword that we've seen recently with, you know, Maryland has had a lot of guys – you know, that weren't the highest rated recruits. They don't come into college as stars, but they've got pro prospects because they've got, you know, the, the right size, the right length, the right athleticism, you know, a certain skill or two. Um, like Jackson, I mean, he came in, you know, super long, and he, sh- he was a really good shooter his freshman year. He was, you know, this stretch four, maybe even a small ball five that everyone liked. Um, 
and so he had pro prospects and then he went through his whole sophomore year just with the plan of you know getting ready for the pros and even getting hurt for whatever reason didn't didn't change that course and Herter had a lot of the same thing I mean he, he developed every part of his game and he's got you know the kind of frame and the kind of skill set that really translates well in the NBA but but all these guys you know they don't become superstars in college and they still leave after two years Nella Trimble left after three years Diamond Stone left after one year you know as a result Maryland doesn't get to or hasn't been able to like really grow with a core because the the guys from those cores are are pro prospects just individually so they don't get to grow together the way you would see it you know some other schools like Kansas or most mid-majors or honestly like a, a lot of other schools where guys aren't you know don't become pro prospects Big um, 10. it reminds me yeah yeah like Purdue you see Iowa every now and again more often that. than not mm-hmm. I mean that that's just a whole different thing yeah I mean if you can consistently recruit guys like that you'll always be pretty good um unless you get super duper injured like which happened I mean, Maryland, Maryland was all the time Maryland was young last season they were young this past season they're going to be young next season um and it's the trick of figuring out which of these players are going to be very good but not quite good enough to be great pro prospects and that's the way that it works now in the NBA and who knows how it'll work when the draft rules change but it's that balance and I we again Anthony Cowan is still back for a third year and that's obviously very good and let's get to the positive of it which is Bruno Fernando is coming back for his second year and while Maryland can in theory replace Kevin Herter it would have been a lot harder to replace what Bruno Fernando could have done and he will be back and I think most everyone agrees that this was probably the best decision for his pro career because he might have been a second round pick but he's still a bit too raw and he still has more to develop and Having him back stabilizes this team in a very important way, Thomas. And I think, well, having him back means it's going to be great for Jared because he'll get to give a ton of highlights. But on the court, he's going to help them out in a position of dire need. And if he can take the leap that everybody thinks he could take, then he could be one of the best big men in the Big Ten. Yeah, I mean, he could be the best. I'm starting like, to think most about of who the other best could guys be are... there because I don't even well, know. Well, because Wagner left, Jaron Jackson left, Nick Ward is still going to be As around we Ethan Happ, whether he's going to be I, back or not yeah Ethan Happ I don't know whether he's back or not when yeah but Wagner's gone Jaron Jackson he's gone yeah and so Bruno will be in that mix and you know he's got all the tools you would want um you know this past year he improved throughout the season and obviously between you know the the team you know working out with the team as much as he did and also prepping for the draft, you know, he's definitely going to come back, you know, in, you know, with an improved game and maybe, you know, the summer tour will, will give him, you know, more familiarity with we keep forgetting this about year's that team. Summer tour that Maryland is doing, which is weird because they never usually do that, but it will help. It's more games. Yeah. And it's, it's practices in the summer that they wouldn't get otherwise. And we'll, we'll get to more of that as time goes on because it is something that we should be worth talking about and we will but jared when it comes to bruno fernando he's going to lead a forward and center group that is a bit thin i mean schneider harrard is there they're going to have 
even Bender back. They're going to have some other options with Josh Tomajic. But having Bruno Fernando adds that big piece up front, which you might not need necessarily to win anymore in the college game. But when you're a Maryland team that's going to be really young in the backcourt, aside from a couple of players, it's going to be great to have somebody like Bruno Fernando, hopefully, to rely on. And if he can take the next step in his development, then this team is forecasted to be a lot better because last year Bruno Fernando was asked to do probably a bit too much because the team behind him just wasn't deep enough. But now I think he's going to be playing on a better team, which is going to definitely allow him to flourish more. Yeah, I think there's an argument to be made that, uh, you know, Herter's going to be the bigger, like the the better draft prospect right now at least. Um, And was a better college player last year. But Bruno leaving and Herter staying would have been like a worse situation for Maryland basketball. Oh, it than... would have been worse. It just meant the team would have been kind of lopsided on its roster, which has been the case with Maryland teams of years past. Either they're well, too lopsided in front court heavy or they're too backcourt heavy. It's one or the other. Well, that's what I'm saying. Is there? I mean, then you would have been left with a backcourt of even Bender, Josh Tomajic, uh Schneider Harrard. Schneider Harrard for half the year and yeah. and uh Jalen Smith coming in. So that sounds not good. Um not all of a right sudden now. all of a sudden now you have arguably, you know, one of the best big men in the entire conference is coming back. Um and Herder's gone, but you have, you know, a top forty player and Aaron Wiggins coming in, who coming out of high school, you know, is a much higher rating than Herder was uh, coming out of high school. So, I mean, obviously you'd probably take a third year Kevin Herder than, than a freshman, but, you know, just from a pure rating standpoint, this kid Wiggins is supposed to be pretty good. Um, and so I don't think that could be undersold. Um, that recruiting aspect of it is, you know, Maryland was in a much better position to lose, um, to lose Herder and keep Fernando than it was vice versa. This is definitely true, and I can understand that argument. And now I think, Thomas, it's a good time to pretty much look at this roster and see how it would shake out. So their first game next year is against Delaware on Tuesday, November. Election Day, actually, is when it is, which is interesting. But uh, so that starting lineup, uh, you've been talking about it when you were writing all the posts, which you should be reading if you already haven't, uh, about what this roster would look like if Fernando came back, if Herter came back, if both came back, if neither did. So now that we know essentially what this roster is going to be in 2018-19, what do you think the opening night starting five is going to be? All right, well, I have a pretty good answer for you on that. So we would go Cowan running the point, Daryl Morcel at the two guard, followed by Aaron Wiggins, Jalen Smith, and Bruno Fernando. That's very likely the starting five. And that's not um, a bad starting five in any way, shape, or Not at all. And, like, I am absolutely going to talk myself into that starting five all summer. I think the, the big question mark is, you know, how ready are Wiggins and Smith? And I've only ever seen things that suggest the answer is they're pretty ready. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if they both are, then, you know, we know they have the talent to, to hang around the Big Ten. And, you know, and and the bench is still deep enough, I think. You know, it'll take probably – you will need guys like Eric Ayala 
Hill and Sorrell Smith to be good role players as freshmen. And then Joshua Tamayich will need to take a step forward as a redshirt sophomore. And even Bender has to um, provide what he has provided. Even as Bender. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and do that, preferably stay healthy. And then Schneider Herard, when he comes, you know, when he becomes eligible to be, you know, a good secondary center. Mm-hmm. I think um, what's also you know, interesting. The, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like they'll be asking anybody to do things they can't do. It's just that they're, you know, it's kind of how college basketball works because a group of players leave every year, and then it's on this next group of players to, you know, step up a little bit. I think it's also good, Jared, that Maryland now has experiences with putting freshmen in key roles because in almost every year of recent Maryland basketball history, a freshman has been asked to play a very key role in a team, and they've been successful in playing in that key role. I mean, last year it was Fernando and Marcel. They played a very big role, and they played very well. Uh, obviously, Cowan, Herter, and Jackson played very well the year before. Every year, it seems like freshmen do step up, and the coaching staff trusts freshmen to step up. I mean, you have to in modern-day college basketball to be successful. But most of the Maryland successes have definitely come from freshmen taking that step and being almost even a little bit better than people would expect. And if Maryland can get, again, decent pretty solid performances out of maybe two of the three freshmen, then they're in good shape next year, it seems to stand, right? Yeah, I think so. And, I mean, like we keep saying, the two guys, um, you know, there there are two leading candidates coming in, you know, to to take on those responsibilities um, in in Sticks and Wiggins. So, you know, I think it's, it's kind of clear-cut who those two guys are. Um, are projected again, we didn't to be necessarily expect it to develop the way it did a couple of years ago when it was another player every night you know i don't necessarily think it could be one or the other or one of the three but it could be a couple every night and again if you get consistent performances out of two out of the three of them with everyone flashing something or something of this nature every given night then they have the chance to again really take the next step forward because they got three of them right yeah yeah i i mean I don't know exactly what to expect um, going forward, but you know I think Maryland is is in a pretty decent position going forward. Um, you know I, I don't think there's there's and I know it's tough to say this to a Maryland fan base, but I don't think there's much need for for any doom and gloom right now. Oh well, there will be, and there is. But I want to ask a bigger picture question before we uh, move off of college basketball, Thomas. And I think it is, last year was very bad for Maryland. They didn't make any postseason tournaments, and the heat on Mark Turgeon got louder and louder. I thought, of course, some of that was not justified because of the injuries, but it was clear that that was one of the toughest years the program has had in recent times. But this year's very critical year, much like how the 14-15 season was when they had Melo Trimble coming in. There was a lot of pressure on Mark Turgeon to make the tournament and get the program kind of back on track. And with Kevin Herter leaving, it's going to be a little bit harder, but maybe perhaps Mark Turgeon now has a greater margin for error. Do you agree with this? A little bit. I think, I mean, they'll actually start this year around the same spot where they've started the last couple of years, which is probably around but outside the top 25 preseason. Well, in the top and 25, it'll be on two years ago. Start top 25? I, okay. Yeah, I think so. They were ranked. But, uh, yeah, I mean, in, in, you know, toward the back of it, yeah, toward the back of it, just outside it, in that range, 
is where I expect him to be this year. And it's it's what you do with that. You know, Maryland, you know, in two years ago, you know, rose as high as, like, the low teens because they started 20-2 and two for some reason. And then, you know, last year, injuries, not winning road games, not winning close games, you know, they fell apart and missed the tournament. So I think it's it's really what you do with with that spot because it's a similar spot to where they've been. But I can argue that if Maryland had Kevin Herter, the pressure on Mark Turgeon would have been huge because if they had a bad year with that group of players, there might not have been a lot of defending Mark Turgeon. The calls for him to get fired would have been very, very loud. Now that he does not have Kevin Herter, he still has a very good team, but not nearly as good as he could have had, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. His margin for error probably gets a little bit bigger because he now has to rely again on more freshmen to be successful. And if Kevin Herter had returned, it would have been maybe one freshman as opposed to now two or three, pending how the season develops for Maryland to take that step going forward to be a tournament team. That's the bare minimum of expectations. But if Kevin Herter came back, then the expectations would have been really, really high. And because this is Maryland, I'm not sure that Mark Turgeon, even in the best of seasons, and this team could have met that bar. I think that's a reasonable take. Um, I'm not sure, you know, probably tournament at the minimum for this year. And even even then, like, I, I don't know what the administrative situation would be and where, you know, he would stand with boosters and stuff. Because I think he's still... no AD, so it's... A bit of yeah, a I mean, weird he's still... situation, but Maryland fans, the calls got loud at the end of last season, and reasonably so, but nothing was ever going to happen to him because of the injury situation and because of the chaos at the athletic department. Now, presumably by the time we get to November, the chaos will have subsided somewhat. Certainly by the end of next season, you would expect to have an athletic director at some point who has been in place for a while, and then decisions could be made. Of course, Maryland is paying Mark Turgeon a lot of money, well into the next decade so eating that money would have been difficult if they wanted to fire him but now having a team with less expectations they will have expectations but not nearly as high as top 15 preseason team would have uh, allowed them to be Uh, that means that there's a lower bar to clear for Mark Turgeon and this team to essentially say all right if we made the tournament made the second round for instance there probably wouldn't have been as much criticism as if Maryland did that and Kevin Herter had returned. Yeah, I, I think at the same time, it, probably either way, it would take a team falling apart for Turgeon to, you know, really, really be in trouble with his job because, you know, he's he got extended just a couple of years ago and he's still got, you know, several years left on it at good money. Um, but so it, I think it would take, you know, the team really falling apart for, you know, Maryland to, to, to fire its coach. Jared, what do you think about that line of thought? Without repeating everything you just said, I'll just Please, throw in. <laughs> I'll just throw in an, an I agree, um, and we can move on to something else. That's a good idea, but we will see how this whole thing shakes out. So now it's pretty much assured that Maryland's roster is going to look like what it is. There might be another Turgeon random foreign player out of the hat, something like that, that could happen down the line. But the team that we have expected now is pretty much set and expectations and plans can be drawn for next season. And we'll get to see this team in action later in the summer with their foreign tour, which will be very interesting to cover and very interesting to watch as it goes on. 
Uh, we thought after Bruno Fernando, after I, I thought that maybe things were going to be turning around for Maryland when Bruno announced that he was going to stay, and maybe the basketball would obfuscate the bad lacrosse weekend, but it's still more bad than good because both of the lacrosse teams lost on Friday and Saturday, which was very sad. Thomas, which one do you want to talk about first? We'll start with uh, with the women because they went first. Okay, yeah, I think that makes um, sense. It's fair to them. And it was, well, you know, they all year were among the top teams. They were never ranked toward the top because, you know, one of the teams that was ahead of them all year was Boston College um, because BC was undefeated until the ACC title game and then, you know, reached the NCAA title game before losing to James Madison. So, you know, the, the gap between Maryland and everyone else was much thinner this year than it was in the past. I think there were really, this year there were really five teams that really all could have probably beaten each other at any given time. Um, you know, it's the four teams that made the Final Four and then Stony Brook. You know, we're really, they, they seem to be head and shoulders above everyone else. You know, Boston College just out, you know, played better than Maryland when they met. And that, you know, it, it's really, it it's sounds. It's rude to say that. It's rude to say that a Maryland team gets outplayed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, BC did the best job of shutting down Megan Weddle and, you know, shutting down, well, also shutting down the rest of Maryland's offense um, that, that anyone's done all year. And then interestingly enough, I mean, James Madison won the title. Maryland is going to be the only loss on JMU's schedule this year. Um, and that came in College Park, the one game that I covered by chance. Um, Naturally. So, I mean, you, you see, you know, and just watching that game, Maryland was very clearly the better team. And it looked like, you know, it, there was there was just a talent gap and there was more to it than Maryland just being at home. Um, and so, you know, to see JMU in the title, I mean, that's a that's a senior heavy team that's never done that before. Like, you know, great for them. You know, I obviously know people on that team, so it's that's cool. But like, you know, from from Maryland perspective, you'll be looking at it and thinking, you know, that, that it he's it very easily could have been Maryland. I think it, it for the men, been. that's where that's where the difference comes in because the men lost to Duke in pretty convincing fashion, and then Duke lost to Yale in somewhat convincing fashion. They made it a game at the end. Um, yeah. First on the so women, I, think, I think that's the main difference between the two. Yeah, first on the women, I, maybe you could argue that Boston College expended all their energy trying to get revenge on Maryland for last year, and maybe that was kind of what happened. Because Maryland, obviously, they have the motivation every single year to be incredibly good all the time. But sometimes when you're defending national champions and you're facing a team you had beaten to win a national championship, the motivation is going to get exceeded. There's more desperation. And then maybe Boston College, I was not, I didn't want to watch the national title game actually after Maryland lost, of course. But when you see that and you see James Madison beat them, maybe they expended all that energy to kind of beat Maryland and they didn't have enough left in the tank for Sunday. I guess that's possible. I didn't follow the teams outside of Maryland as much as I followed Maryland, obviously. But maybe that seems like a reasonable explanation. Maybe that's how the game played out more when you think about it in hindsight. But for the men, yeah, they got pretty dominated by Duke. And it's not often that a men's team gets dominated like that. It happens where they lose a couple of games every now and again, but they don't usually get dominated. But their offense, it took them a long time to get into gear, Jared. And they barely had enough time after that to make it close. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, seemed like it was kind of the story in, in 
both games. I mean, the women jumped out to an early lead and then kind of were neck and neck for the rest of the game. Um, the men, obviously, we all know were down, what, 6 nothing before they did anything. Um, both games, I kind of sat there for the for the most part just what you know it neither neither game looked like um looked like the maryland lacrosse teams i watched for most of the season um the men less so than the women i think the women may have had more you know more of kind of an off night um the men had some trouble most of the season it seemed kind of kicking things into gear um and obviously at this point in the tournament playing such an elite you know such elite competition that that wasn't gonna fly um but yeah i mean i was just kind of sitting there both games just you know just felt kind of frustrating to watch um just from you know like a like a lacrosse watching standpoint the men were very sloppy um, early on and late, and the women. I mean, first of all, Sam Apuzo on Boston College had an amazing game, but I, it was just I don't know. It uh, it, it didn't. It, it after last year's euphoria of of the double um, with the two of them, seeing them both go out in, you know, in the final four. You know, that, that sounds, I guess, really snobby. You know, oh, both the Maryland lacrosse teams lost in the semifinals. Um, well, that's what you expect with Maryland lacrosse. But, but yeah, but it is. I mean, Connor Kelly said it in, in the postgame presser. Is the final four is the standard for Maryland lacrosse, and it is. He's right. Um, and so just for both teams to go out um, before even making the championship game felt like you know, I had I had cleared plans already to be ready to you know to help edit and write stuff um, on Sunday yeah, and Monday. I was I was clearing and, my schedule uh, to watch it on Monday, and then I was like, you know what, I'm not going to do this now. You know, I was keeping so. my eyes on the on the men, kind of going back and forth between that and a very stupid Champions League final. And then as it started six nothing, I'm like, you know what, do I want to put myself through this again? Right. Yeah, so I didn't, I didn't really want to. You know, it felt it was, a lot better to watch a goalie, you know, not that Dan Morris made a ton of mistakes, but it felt a lot better to watch a goalie that I had no emotional connection with because he's playing for a team that I like screw up multiple times in a gigantic game as opposed to watching a team that I like screw up a couple of times in a gigantic game. So that, that, that made me feel a little bit better as I was watching on Twitter, everybody going doom and gloom on my timeline going, oh, Maryland's down 4 nothing, 5 nothing, 6 nothing. Hi, guys, wake up, please. Uh, and then, Thomas, for the these teams next season – they're obviously in different positions because the core of the women are going to come back, and they always dominate anyway. But for the men, it's going to be a little bit harder to get some of that jump start in success that they've been having the last couple of years. Obviously, losing in the national title game a couple straight years, then winning one in a Final Four for the men. It's going to be a little bit different for both of these programs next year, although I think it's pretty safe to say the women have a little bit more coming back. I think the men also have a lot coming back. I mean, they they're losing Kelly and Rotans, but they're keeping Jared Bernhardt, Bubba Fairman, Logan Wisnowskis. There won't be as many seniors next year as there will be for the women, so it'll be a little bit of a different dynamic. You know, it might still be somewhat of a transition year. I think 2020 might be like the year for the men's team um, because all you know, all the top attackers from this year 
that'll be around next year will still be around. Um, yeah. On the women's side, you know, they're losing Megan Whittle, Taylor Hench, and I believe one of their defenders, Kathy Rudkin. Mm-hmm. But, like, they're still returning everyone else, including, you know, the goalie, most of the attack. They're bringing in another top freshman. Um, they they will be fine. Um, I think at the same time, though, Boston College will have, have its core back plus Kenzie Kent, who had 10 points in last year's title game mm-hmm. and who is going to have a full season of lacrosse under her belt whenever those two teams meet again. Yeah. So, you know, I mean – the women will be, you know, right up there for for sure, um, but they, they will definitely have worthy challengers with now histories of beating them. Um, while the men, they'll be around. You know, they'll have to replace a goalie, which I think is, you know, definitely something to, to worry about right now. Which is, I mean, it's it's weird to say that because Maryland's done it so well, but I I would agree with you. Just from, I'm not exactly the biggest lacrosse expert in the world, but from everything I did when I was covering the team more in depth, replacing a goal is a lot harder than it is in like soccer or hockey or any other sport like that. It is really hard. And a goalie, you don't make a ton of saves in lacrosse, but when you make saves, they're big saves. And they're gigantic moments. And Maryland's had really good goalies for a long time, so placing Dan Morris is certainly going to be difficult. Uh, and we don't want to really end on a sad news. We'll try not to end on the sad news that of Cliff Tucker passing away on Memorial Day. That was very sad to see. And it kind of added a whole pall to everything that was going on around Maryland sports. And uh, what, what, what to talk about that, guys? I mean, the positive of Cliff Tucker was a great player. Of course, if you've ever watched Maryland highlights on YouTube, there's that highlight of him hitting the buzzer beater to beat Georgia Tech, which is a great, a great moment. Uh, but he, he did more than that, obviously, for Maryland. And it's, it's always horrible to lose anybody that young, particularly somebody who has a connection to a program we all care about so much. You know, it was obviously sad to see. We saw it, you know, late Monday night. Um, you know, Monday was like, you know, a good day for us because Fernando had come back and we had done all the stuff about that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, I was not really a Maryland fan when Cliff Tucker played. But, you know, I, I, I to be honest, he was he was on the teams, you know, and, you know, obviously I I kind of remember the Georgia Tech shot now, um, you know, it wasn't something that I had thought of a lot, um, you know, recently because it wasn't I wasn't a Maryland fan during that game, but but yeah, I mean, obviously it's it's heartbreaking to see, and you know, I'm, I'm it's been nice to see the outpouring of support from you know players and coaches and fans of the program, you know, because you know it's been seven years since Cliff Tucker played for Maryland. It's a family, and, and we everyone's all still these kind of players. You know, yeah. he's not he's not Grievous Vasquez from those teams, but you know, those are fondly remembered teams. You know, they did a lot with not so much, and those are teams that still, I think, many people have a lot more fond memories of, even though they weren't the best Maryland teams of recent times. They're certainly some of the more fun teams. I mean, Grievous made it a lot of fun, but you have to have those players like uh, Cliff Tucker, and he and he made those teams go along. For two years when they made the tournament and won a couple of games in the tournament and again because of the last days for Gary Williams those are fun teams to watch even I remember that even in high school I wasn't exactly a Maryland fan then but those, those were fun teams they were entertaining teams and there's there's nothing like watching some of those great atmospheres when Grievous would take over and you know in the end Cliff Tucker played a huge role in those teams and 
the last days of the ACC too. So a lot of fond memories for Maryland fans and very sad to see him go in our well wishes, of course, to his family. And to end on a positive-ish note, because I don't want to end on somebody uh, tragically passing away. That's a horrible way to end a show. Uh, Vegas, because we're all thinking about Vegas right now. I know most Maryland fans are thinking about Vegas because of other teams that they root for. Uh, Jared, the over-under is four and a half. I would say easy money. Go, easy. I would have said that, and then I'm thinking, wait, it's Maryland. There's going to be a chance that all the quarterbacks get injured again. Easy money. I'm sticking with easy money. I think that um... – Gosh, wait, I had some I saw some cool thing earlier. Let me see if I can pull it up real quick. Um cool thing. What might that be on on how much well, I can tell you that Maryland is probably gonna win four. Don't think they're gonna lose more than eight. But whether they can win five and six, you know what? They play in the Big Ten East. It's not easy for them to do that, as it has been proven in recent years. Oh, I got it. Yeah. Um No, I mean, look, I think that uh for Maryland not to improve on a four-win season um, would be a huge Bad. disappointment from a fan's standpoint and just from, like, a neutral observer's standpoint. Like, you want to see um, as many teams... everybody wants to see Michigan and Ohio State and Penn State lose to somebody eventually. Right, other than each other. Other than each other, yes. I think everyone's tired of those three teams, and if it was a team that was random in the Big Ten like Maryland, it would be hilarious and would also be great for us. Because everybody right. loved Maryland for one Saturday last year, and it was great. I want more of those days. Yeah, I mean, that was a, that was a heck of a Saturday, let me tell you. Well, uh, that was one of the best Saturdays I've had in a long time, i got to tell you what. But, um, but, yeah, I mean, look, you replace in the non-conference, you replace – Towson and UCF with a terrible Bowling Green team um, and Temple. So Temple could be decent, but it's a team Temple, that Maryland should be beating at home. Temple could be decent again, play playing um, at home. And Temple only Temple had seven wins last year, but they only beat um, one team that finished with a better S and P plus ranking than they did. Um, so they really kind of beat up on bad bad teams. That's a uh, solid mid-major program. I gotta which is yeah, no, I mean Temple. Look, I mean, and and that's what you got to do, right? You got to beat the teams you're supposed to beat, um, and hopefully you pull one or two or however many that. And as, we, and as you said last year, they got dealt the worst possible hand they could dealt with the crossover games. This year, the crossover games are a lot more favorable to them, as we've said before. Right, Maryland avoids Wisconsin, which is huge. They're a dark horse playoff contender, a national Nebraska, championship contender. I don't think would have been a team that Maryland could have beaten. Right. So, I mean, what, the, the three are Iowa, Illinois, and Minnesota, Minnesota. again. So Minnesota, they beat last year on the road with, right, with no Max Borgeslager. I think they could beat them at home with a better quarterback. But I said that in 2016, and they didn't beat them, so... And Illinois is bad, one of the few teams you could say in football in the Big Ten that's worse than Maryland. And Iowa on the road is obviously going to be difficult, but Iowa doesn't blow anybody out. So. Iowa's an interesting team. They always seem to play to almost exactly their level of, like, their level, their their opponent's level of, of competition. Which um, means Maryland has a chance. Right, exactly. But, but what I think is interesting is that Maryland is returning at – almost every position except receiver mm -hmm. um they're returning 
a lot of their production. Um, so like Ryan Brand, I guess, is the only quarterback who did anything stat worthy that left. So Maryland returns all of its production at quarterback. Um, Maryland's returning all of its rushing yards, give or take 10 from Ryan Brand again. Um, they're returning on defense, probably a little bit less because there's a lot of turnover there. Um, but the, the, a lot of the big playmakers, um, are back. We'll give Jermaine Carter and JC Jackson, you know, on the other end of that, but they're bringing back almost the entire starting secondary. Um, they're again, replacing JC Jackson with Marcus Lewis so I mean, I mean, look, we don't have to get into a full football preview right now. No. We'll do that later. But, but I mean, f- to not improve on on four and eight would be bad. Uh, I would I would be shocked to be honest with you. I I would be you know trying to be as they as neutral to, as possible. They, I would okay, be shocked. So if they if they beat Temple and Bowling Green, which they should again last year, we said they should beat UCF and they didn't. But that's a whole other circumstance. Then you have Indiana and Rutgers, Illinois, Minnesota, and uh, and uh, yeah. So that's four. Let's that's six. If you beat all of them, that's six. The only way that they would screw that up is if they lost two of those Big Ten games. Right. And that is to say, they don't surprise and then maybe beat Iowa, maybe be competitive against somebody else and beat them because last year they beat Texas and had four wins. So there's obviously a chance that they're going to win more than four and a half. I would like to say put a bet on that. But I'm not going to do that because my gambling knowledge is not very good. And the last time I did that, I lost money by thinking the Jaguars were going to be bad and they turned out to be good. But then again, I was happy about that. So, I mean, I would love to take the under bet, but I'm not going to do that. Not with Maryland. There are other teams that you might want to do that with in college football, but I would never do it on my own team, even though I'm always fatalistic about Maryland football. And I think we all are. Uh, I'll do it. I'll do it on the positive. Zach Steffen's playing for the U.S. men's national team. That is good because Zach Steffen is very, very good. And suddenly the U.S. actually has goalies that I like. And that's positive. Zach's always been a player that I've rated very highly for many years. And hopefully he gets to play against Ireland and France. We'll see whether he actually does. But he's been great for the crew for many years now. And he's going to be great for the U.S. whenever he plays. So I'm very excited to watch him play in his first full cap for the U.S. Hopefully he gets it at some point in these next two games. That's a good way to end on a positive. Isn't it, Thomas? Yep. That's, uh, that's a I'm good try, thing. Try to end on a positive on a show that's largely negative. Uh, on a goalkeeper pun. You saved it. Okay. Goodbye. Uh, okay. Now, that's a perfect time then because you made two terrible puns in this show, and that makes me very – well, it made me sad and depressed, but then again, I've seen Twitter, and I've seen way worse puns than that. So we will be back with you at some point soon if there is any Maryland news to break. We're getting into the dead zone now uh, for the next couple of months. Uh, Thomas, when does the overseas basketball tour begin? It's got to begin at sometime in mid late August, I think, right? Yeah, I think it's early August. Um, oh. Really, the next thing is like the MLB draft, which is next week. Yeah. But, and then there's the NBA draft in June. We'll have football preview coverage coming. We yes, might do we more will. outtakes. So, I would think so. We'll have I stuff. Think so. We're going to have some created stuff, but we'll really we'll pick up again when football practices start and we can start watching Maryland playing in those overseas games in August. I think that's going to be the next time. It's been sad, but remember, there is still positive. You can root for Zach Steffen and not feel bad about it because he's really good. And Maryland still produces really good soccer players. Uh, until then, of course, no terms.